still one of the most recognized and beloved names in all of television has to be Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. And uh, we are going to be learning a little bit more about him today, courtesy of a very gifted and award-winning writer by the name of Tim Madigan, who uh, has won a number of awards for his uh, journalism work and is responsible for two superb books, See No Evil, Blind Devotion and Bloodshed and David Koresh's Holy War, and The Burning Massacre, Destruction, uh, uh, and The Tulsa Race Riots of 1921. Uh, things are a bit different in the pages of this book. Uh, not all sunshine, plenty of uh, sorrow and poignancy and hurt, but also the story of an absolutely stupendous friendship between uh, Tim Madigan and Fred Rogers. This book is called I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers. It's a Gotham book, and Tim Madigan joins us for the next few minutes to talk about the book, this story, and Fred Rogers. Tim Madigan, we welcome you to the morning show. Good morning, Greg. How are you? Fine, thank you. Look forward this, to this very much. I cannot get over, and I wonder if anyone else has asked you about this, but I can't get over the sort of strange disconnect or, or high contrast, the almost absurd contrast between the title of your two previous books and what we presume to be their theme and a beautiful, heartwarming book about Fred Rogers. It just seems like this story stands in such utter contrast to much of what you have uh, written about in your career. Uh, does that strike you as, as sort of odd? Well, it, it, has, uh, it has struck me, um, particularly since I've been talking about this latest book, when uh, people are asking me, my God, you go from David Koresh to Mr. Rogers, and if that's not covering a span of humanity, <laughs> uh, it, it, it is very, very interesting that... Um, I, I'm not sure that in this life you could you could uh, cover the cover the spectrum from good to evil as completely as going from uh, David Koresh and what happened in Tulsa in 1921 to Mr. Rogers, who I've come to believe is uh, uh, in the same league uh, as uh, Abraham Lincoln and Mother Teresa and Gandhi and you know, the great human beings of our of our civilization. Hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, and it's uh, maybe, maybe uh, it's because I've had those earlier experiences that has deepened my appreciation of what Fred did for. And maybe uh, it deepened your need for this kind of life-affirming friendship. Well, that could be too. That could be too. Um, there's a tendency, even you know, even now, when you see the things that are going on in the world, um, uh, to despair and and wonder about. Uh, human beings as a species and but then i remember fred and i remember his goodness and his kindness and his compassion and and i realized uh, what we are capable of humans mm -hmm. i mean uh, that is you know that yeah i think he sets the bar for us and in, in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and and then it just so it just it is uh, you know it is very affirming and i really wanted the book to be affirming for people who read it it's interesting, too, so often in this dangerous world in which we live, we hear that phrase, what human beings are capable of. We so often hear that kind of in reference to the reverse of, of the terrible things that human beings are capable of, like flying planes into buildings and that kind of thing. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's really nice to hear that phrase used 
exactly the opposite, the, the goodness that we are capable of. Well, that's true, and, and um, you know, he was, he was so extraordinary and, and almost otherworldly, but he was, he was human, and, and the thing that made him so extraordinary as in adult relationship and as an adult was his capacity uh, to be completely present uh, to a person in friendship, completely present to life moment by moment. Uh, when he was listening to you, he was really listening to you. Hmm. And I think that ability, uh, almost Zen-like ability to be present, you know, was really at the root of his spiritual genius and at the root of his ability to be compassionate and loving and wise. And, you know, with every waking minute, you know, I think a lot of us can be compassionate, loving, and wise, you know, with percentages of our day. But he lived there, and um, it was extraordinary to experience that uh, in friendship. I would I would be with him in Pittsburgh, or I'd write him letters or send him emails, and uh, everyone would come back pitch perfect, uh, you know, pitch perfect love, pitch perfect wisdom or compassion, uh, because he was completely present to to me and to the world, and and I know that he was like that with everyone he met, whether it be Katie Couric or the guy who hands out towels in his health club. Hmm. You encountered Fred Rogers for the first time over the phone uh, as part of uh, an article you were writing, which which had to do, I think, with the effect of violence on on children, maybe television violence and and, and how it perhaps uh, affected children. You had the chance to speak with uh, Bob Keeshan of Captain Kangaroo fame, another beloved figure. And then you have this phone call with, with Fred Rogers, which was the start of this extraordinary friendship. Looking back now, uh, are you able to explain just how this exceptional friendship and a somewhat unlikely one could, could spring from a phone call? I don't. I, I can't explain it at all. Um, I'm as mystified by it now as I was as I was then um, what he saw in me if anything I, I don't I, I don't understand why or how he could make the choice to invest in a friendship relatively late in his life when his life was already so full uh, but he invested in it completely um, I just don't know how he's able to do it and uh, I know that other people you know feel the same way about him uh, with this television program with uh, many, many friends, um, but it but it happened, uh, and one of the reasons why I felt like I needed to go ahead and write the book is that it did happen. I did have this experience with him, and uh, I can offer a perspective that perhaps is not often seen of this person who would have been one of civilization's great people if no one knew him except by his television program. But there's a whole not- there's an adult dimension to him that really needed to be known. But from that first conversation, I knew that there was something extraordinary because he said to me late in that first telephone interview, he said, Tim, you know what the most important thing in the world to me is right now? And I said, no, what's that, Mr. Rogers? And he said, speaking to Tim Madigan on the telephone. And I thought to myself at the time, yeah, right. But uh, as I got to know him, I realized that uh, what he was saying is true. So he was making that kind of investment uh, from the very first moment that we spoke, and I, I suspect that he did that with most, pe- most people he met. You tell us that he had just suffered quite a, a, a devastating uh, personal blow not long before the two of you met in person. 
uh, and, and not long before you had this first conversation, the death of a very, very uh, beloved person, friend, longtime friend in, in his life. Just tell us briefly about that and, and whether or not you think that figures at all in why uh, he was appreciative of, of, of having a new friend at this point in his life. Well, that's true. Uh, we were sitting in his office on my first trip to Pittsburgh when I, after the, after the piece that I did about violence on television, and we kind of connected, and, and one thing led to another, and I decided to go to Pittsburgh to profile him for my newspaper in Fort Worth. And we were sitting in his little office, and it was a tiny little office in the public television station in Pittsburgh, and talking about various things. And I, I think he was trying to explain to me how um, he's a human being like everyone else, and, that, and subject to the same kind of anger and grief and sorrow and, and that, that we all are. And as a, as, a, as a way of explaining that, he, he was telling me about this friend named Jim Stumbaugh, who was just a pivotal uh, pivotal friend uh, in, in his early years in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And about a month prior to that time, uh, Stumbaugh had died of cancer himself. And uh, he was telling me what a wonderful person he was, and he was telling me um, what, it, what, what a blow it was to lose such a person, and he's telling me about his own anger and how he pounded harder on his, on his piano keys to express his anger. And he had been looking out the window um, in his office uh, into this day and speaking very, very softly, even more softly than he did uh, normally. And, and finally he turned to me and he looked at me, and I... And, remember I had my tape recorder running and he said to me Tim you're ministering to me and I, I just thought you know well, excuse me and he said by, by listening you minister to me and I as I say in the book I really felt like that was the moment um, that our friendship began and you know, frankly as a journalist over the years I'd always um, believed that unless you're in an overtly adversarial situation with a source, that an interview should be a conversation and that and that to the extent you can truly listen to the person you're talking to is the extent to, to which uh, you can really be privy to their innermost life. And so maybe I was doing that with Fred and maybe he sensed that and, and, uh, and, 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 but for whatever reason, I always considered that to be kind of the genesis of our friendship. We're speaking with Tim Madigan about his book, I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers. Along with you know, all the, the poignancy in these pages as, uh, as your friendship grows and you share with one another on such a profound level, it's also really kind of fun to be given uh, an up-close, honest, uh, affectionate, behind-the-scenes look at Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. One of the interesting observations you make is that a lot of the people working on that show, at least the day that you were there, you called them a, a, a very young, rather irreverent, even sometimes vulgar uh, group of people. And it sounds like that surprised you as much as it surprises us to read those words. And yet somehow this all worked together really well and that behind the, the surface or beneath the surface, uh, the, these, these people working on this show knew they were part of something very special. Well, that's true. Uh, it was it was it was very surprising to me. I had this image of of 
of him being surrounded on the television set in his office by this group of kind of saintly people, mere saintly people, you know, kind of like he was. And that's not to say that they weren't all great people, but they were very real and uh, and uh, and could be kind of body. And they would laugh at, uh, you know, and the, the episode that I saw them tape that weekend I was in Pittsburgh, Fred comes pops onto the set wearing sunglasses, maybe swanky new swanky sunglasses and i was in the control room at the time and these these guys these men and women were bent over laughing and um i met this guy named nick tallow who's um you know the stage manager who's balding guy was covered over in tattoos and it and it worked and uh you know in the film industry for a long time um and uh you know it he just shot a movie with Bill Murray, I think, and he said when people on those kinds of sets found out that he was working for Mr. Rogers, they were all in awe of him, saying, oh, my God, can you introduce me to this guy sometimes? But, uh, you know, they were real, and they were, you know, vulgar, as people are vulgar. But they were also, he was the boss on the set, and after each take, they'd all kind of gathered around uh, gathered around him, and he'd put his tennis shoes up on a on a monitor and he'd watch that segment and sip on his fruit juice and um and a lot of times they thought that they would have the thing nailed and he would see something that uh, needed to be different maybe just a word maybe just a gesture everything that went into that program was so carefully thought out uh, by him and he was definitely the boss and and he was could be a taskmaster. Everything had to be just right. He, obviously, he would do it in a very gentle way. But uh, uh, those those programs and their ability to communicate to children were no accident. He thought about every word and every gesture, you know, that that, that he saw on the air. Before we talk a little more about your friendship, let let's give you an opportunity because obviously this is something you've thought about a lot, and and you write about it to some extent in the book, although actually not at great great length, but. Uh, what about this program do you think uh, made it so exceptional and and allowed it to have such lasting, powerful impact on on the children who watched it, and for that matter, their parents too? Well, I think that, you know, and the book is, is, isn't really about the program. Um, you know, and I wanted to talk, of, I wanted people to see how he was an adult in, in, a, in an adult relationship. But I think that the reason that it that it resonated the way it did with children and their parents is the same reason that you know that it resonated with me and with his other friends, and that very consciously on his program, his his goal was to look into the eyes of each child who was watching that program and make them feel like he was talking to them directly and talking to them directly and almost listening to them, anticipating their questions, anticipating their concerns, and, and providing them with as what he, what he called uh, a concerned and caring adult who is going to be able to put his arm around them and, and put life in context and tell them that when Mommy and Daddy fight, that doesn't necessarily mean bad things are going to happen, um, or it's okay to be angry and here's some things to do when you are. Um, but it was done in a, in a way, in a very conscious way, that Fred wanted to make it a one-on-one conversation. And he was the same way when you were his friend. Um, he would look into your eyes and, as I said before, be very, very present to you. And 
Yeah, well, and that, of course, is is really key, I think, uh, and uh, certainly a theme in your book, the fact that that when the cameras were off, he was still Mr. Rogers, and that goodness and that compassion and that interest in others, I mean, that was not just something which he sort of applied to himself before heading into the spotlight. He he lived this. He uh, uh, every every waking moment of, of of his life, it would seem. In fact, the the day you visit the set for the first time, you see him before taping begins, uh, sitting with a severely disabled young person. I think visiting because of the Make a Wish Foundation. Right. And, and the time he takes and the attention that he lavishes on this young person, uh, I mean, impresses you and everyone around him. Well, he did. I mean, he he threw the shooting schedule off by a half hour, I'm sure, because he took the time with this young this young man and, and his family, brought them up onto the set, sat them down on the, on the sofa, pulled this kid around on, in a wagon, and while his uh, director was looking at her watch and pacing, you know, he seemed oblivious to it. Uh, you know, but that is the question everyone asked, you know, was he in real life as he was on television? And, and my answer to that was yes and uh, only. Yes, and more. Um, in the adult context, I, I don't think from television alone you can you can get a full measure of his wisdom or of his strength uh, or of his kind of fidelity and loyalty as a friend. Um, but he was uh, he was that person. Uh, he was he was playing himself on television, mm. to put it in the kind of the common vernacular. One really neat little insight into Fred Rogers happens when you, uh, in that, during that same first visit to Pittsburgh, uh, uh, agree to his invitation and you join Fred Rogers and his family at church right. the next morning. And, and he, he later remarks that you're the only journalist over all these years who ever responded affirmatively to that invitation, an invitation he'd obviously made to other people before, but you were the first one to actually take him up on it and to go to church with him. Something happens during that church service, which also, I think, sheds real light into uh, what made Fred Rogers tick, and especially the way he looked at his fellow human beings. Tell us about the story of this woman who gets up and speaks, and Fred Rogers' very compassionate uh, well, attitude to that. Um, I, there is a question in the last couple of weeks or someone was asking me if there's any memory in particular that just really popped out of, about my time with Fred. And it was precisely the, the episode that you described. And I really appreciate your questions. You've obviously read this book and very closely and thought about it. And I really appreciate it. I'm honored by that. But uh, what it was, was in this Sunday, Sunday morning service, you know, as, uh, as is fairly typical, the minister um, asked, congregation to share their joys and concerns and so people got up and talked about new jobs or new babies or someone's in the hospital sick and but at the end this older woman stood in the back of the church and went on this long anti-war harangue that seemed to last you know five to ten minutes they were chastising everyone from the president to generals to anyone who might have had any kind of um uh uh any, any kind of uh, influence in getting American boys killed in combat. And it was very, really quite uncomfortable and very embarrassing. Even the even the, the minister seemed embarrassed. He was kind of shifting his weight from foot to foot. And and 
finally sat down, and there was this tangible sense of relief in the, in the, in the sanctuary that finally this rather deranged-seeming woman was done. And, you know, and I was just embarrassed, too, but Fred leaned over to me, you know, and said, Tim, don't you know that at some point in this woman's life that she has suffered a terrible loss because of war? And after the service, and when everyone else shunned her, uh, he went up and gave her a hug and a, and a kind word. And that is that is the way he was. You know, in that, in, in that kind of situation, he would always kind of look inside a person for the source of their pain that, and for the, for, the, for the source of what might be causing a person to act in unpleasant ways. And he did that all the time. That's just the way he was. As your friendship uh, begins to bloom from that through letters and emails and, and so on, um, one thing that I thought was especially notable is that as we read many of these letters and emails that you include in the book, it's really clear that, I mean, obviously you're a writer. You know how to express yourself this way. And he does too. I mean, it's, it's as though he's speaking to us, speaking to you. And, and he, he just comes shining through. And I suppose in some ways, not everybody is <laughs> maybe uh, sufficiently skilled to, to really have a vibrant uh, friendship which exists almost completely in letters and email. But for the two of you, this is a medium that works wonderfully. And it is though you are on the other end of the telephone or, or across from each other in, in a coffee shop. I mean, uh, you are connecting very powerfully uh, th- through the years in, in this friendship. Well, it, it, I would send him an email or send him a letter and... Uh, and and what I would get back was literature. <laughs> there's only one. There's only he was a he was an absolutely brilliant writer himself. And one of the things I'm wondering about was, you know, how he wrote. You know, um, did he sit down and write these pitch perfect letters? Um, did they just kind of flow from him, or did he agonize or think about what he is writing? But they were each one of them. I mean, there wasn't a word out of place, either stylistically uh, or uh, in terms of sentiment or in terms of the wisdom expressed. There was just, uh, and I really kind of came to appreciate more these things more when you look at them as a body of work. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, he kind of nailed one email or one letter. He would write these things over and over and over again that... Uh, were nourishing both intellectually and spiritually because they were so beautifully, beautifully composed. And I particularly treasure uh, the, the handwritten letters. We, in the later part of our friendship, we communicated a great deal by email. But in the early part of our friendship, it was mostly by the, the old snail mail. And he had a very, very distinctive, meticulous form of handwriting and and uh, and just the to see the slant of his letters and the, the flourish he made and his Fs, you know, it came to, came to mean a great deal to me. And every once in a while, I'll just get them out and look at the handwriting and I'll, and I'll uh, feel comforted and, and uh, kind of filled up with the memories of him. We haven't yet talked about the title of this book, I'm Proud of You. And that, of course, is of paramount importance in terms of, 
of what he meant to you and what he was able to give to you. Tell us what you were so hungry for and the way in which uh, your friend Fred Rogers was able to, to such a, a great degree to, to, to satisfy that hunger for you. Well, I don't think, and as I think I write in the book, I don't think it's any coincidence for some reason that, that at the time that I met him, I was going through a very, very difficult period in my life. Um, there was a profound depression. There were troubles in my marriage. Uh, Fred called this time, or called these things my furies, which I thought was a very elegant way of putting it. Um, and one of the things that uh, I was trying to wrestle with was trying to untangle my feelings towards my father. And um, he was a very good man, but uh, I always felt growing up that there was nothing I could ever do, either as a hockey player or a student or, or whatever, that could, that could make him proud. And that was a complicated situation that Fred helped me, uh, helped me work through and, and heal from. And, uh, but anyway, I wrote him this letter about six months after we met, and, uh, and as I say, either through a combination or inspiration, desperation, or a combination of the two. And in it I said, Fred, if we're going to be friends, here's, here's the truth about my life. You know, my insides are a mess, essentially, is what I told him. And uh, one of the things that I've been working on is trying, or all my life I've tried to get my dad to be proud of me and never seemed to be able to. And so I wrote to him saying, Fred, I have a question to ask you. Would you be proud of me? And uh, I, I cringe even now when I, when I, when I think about that. Uh, but within days, within a matter of two or three days, I had, it seemed like I had a letter back written in all capital letters. You know, and he would say yes with a couple of exclamation points after it. And he said, I am proud of you. I have been proud of you since first we met. And I think that that was the letter in which he said I was the only reporter ever, ever to come to church with him. Um, and from that time on, he would sign uh, almost all of his correspondence, IPOY, uh, which is uh, obviously an acronym that has come to mean a tremendous amount to me. Um, and, uh, and that was, in many respects, the beginning of my healing. And, and uh, uh, again, to have him as, at the other end of that letter uh, was uh, nothing short of miraculous. Hmm. And it's, I think it's interesting, too, that as you work through this, it's, it's, not that you, it's not that Fred Rogers ends up substituting for your father. I mean, obviously, his affection and pride in you meant a lot to you, but eventually you are able to, to realize that, uh, that your father did, did more for you, was, was proud of you in many ways, did not articulate it in words, but I mean, you, you come to appreciate your father through the course of this story, and, and, and that's such a commendable thing, too. Well, I couldn't have written it, I don't think, unless I had come, come to appreciate him. Um, I didn't want this. This, it, it, uh, this is obviously a story of healing. And one of the things about Fred was, as he listened to my own kind of laments and torments and, and, and uh, had a compassionate ear for them, one of the things that he did was he also extended that compassion towards my father. And, and he, he wrote to me saying, Tim, I'm curious about your dad. You know, tell me about his life. And, um, and it's through those questions that I started asking them myself. And I, I started to become curious about my dad's life. And in the course of that, 
and started making some in- inquiries and asking him some questions about his life. And, and sure enough, uh, his childhood was much more difficult than mine. And I came to came to realize that my dad had given me so much more than he had been given as a child, and that he did love me and he was proud of me, and that uh, he just uh, didn't really have the means or the capability of showing it. And that, in fact, who my dad was was just uh, another suffering guy like myself, that he ceased being this kind of mystic, stern figure of my childhood and became just another man with whom I have a very loving and tender relationship today. Hmm. And I think that it was Fred extending his compassion to my dad uh, was a big part of that process and me uh, and me to kind of come to terms with things, with things and, and, and heal. And so... You know, as 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 we've been talking about this morning, his compassion really had no bounds. Hmm. If you were human, he felt for you in a loving way. The book also, of course, deals with uh, the the desperately sad story of your brother Steve and his battle with with cancer and, and eventually his untimely death and Fred Rogers's powerful friendship through all of that. And of course, it isn't terribly long after that that Fred Rogers himself. Uh, is claimed by by cancer, I believe. Right. Um, and unfortunately, you are not able to step into that situation with him uh, the way that you would maybe have wanted to. Do, do you wish that, that you could have somehow walked that walk with, with Fred Rogers somehow uh, as, as his life came to an end? Well, I have to be honest with you. That is, uh, that is a a source of fairly large regret for me um, um, that I wasn't able to do it. I mean, it was because of who he was um, um, and his family, quite justifiably, of course, didn't want his illness to become a public event. And uh, they kept it very close. And, and in a lot of ways, Fred and his family were very private to start with. And so um, I didn't, uh, I wasn't really privy to that. And I was able to kind of communicate This wonderful book, again, is called I'm Proud of You, My Friendship with Fred Rogers. It's published by Gotham Books. It's author Tim Madigan. Tim Madigan, this, uh, this was quite an assignment, trying to put into words such a beautiful friendship, and you have done a marvelous job with it, and I'm so glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. Best wishes in all of your future writing. Thank you so much.